Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Andrew Seeley. He is Director of Advanced Formation for the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education and a tutor at Thomas Aquinas College in California. He's a contributor to a volume of essays that is our topic today. The volume is entitled, Renewing Catholic Schools, How to Regain a Catholic Vision in a Secular Age. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. Well, we're just going to run through the essays. You're, you contribute a few to the piece and, and a few other contributors. So we'll just begin with the introduction, uh, which begins itself with an ambivalent observation. Some Catholic schools are closing. In fact, a lot of them are closing, but, quote, new innovative schools open every year and others embrace a surprising renewal. What is happening here with this uh, this divergence? Well, I think one of the things that's happened is a lot of parents, Catholic parents, were alarmed at what the, at the school offerings that were available for their children, and they um, they kind of started taking matters into their own hands, kind of being good Americans. They thought, well, I can't let my children be educated by what's out there, So, and I don't see anybody else doing anything great, so I better figure this out for myself. So there was a lot of parent initiative that led to the growth of the homeschooling movement and then um, the startup of, in the Catholic world, of independent Catholic schools or schools in the Catholic tradition that tried to offer the best kind of education possible as far as the parents could determine. And that, that really um, started to show that Catholic schools could educate fully under the light of the faith and have a tremendous impact on their students. And um, I think other schools and parochial schools began to take notice, and so then they started to transform themselves, particularly beginning with St. Jerome Academy in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., they, about 2010, they not only began to transform their parochial school, but they put together a beautiful, um, complete educational plan that they both modeled themselves and showed would be successful and shared with the rest of the country. And so there have been many, um, many schools that have followed in that path. I'm going to ask you a little later to give us a couple uh, or one good detailed example, because the book gives a few examples of this kind of school renewal. But let me go back to an older time. The introduction also notes a remarkable statistic that between 1964 and 1984, 40% of Catholic high schools and 76% of elementary schools closed. Why did this happen? 
a number of things happened that converged at the same time. There was the end of the kind of Catholic neighborhood as Catholics became successful economically in American society. They left their Catholic, their poor Catholic neighborhoods where they grew up and spread and integrated into broader society. So that changed a lot of the demographics. And also that made them less inclined probably than they had been to send their kids to Catholic schools when that was not what everybody else was doing. Coupled with, after the Vatican Council, um, a real loss of, of numbers and of direction for the religious that were in the schools. I think that teaching in um, the teaching mission of religious orders was no longer attractive to many of them. And so many of them left, left religious life altogether, and many of the ones that were in, that stayed in religious life, did not want to teach in the classroom, did not see that as a high enough vocation. <laughs> so lay people took over in the teaching and administration, and the lay people had very good hearts about it, but they did not have the deep community life, uh, formation and community life that the religious had. And that was so central to the success of those Catholic schools, was to have those religious present in there, sharing the fruits of their prayer and of their community life with their students and communicating that love to them. Another thing that went along with that was that the lay people had, uh, by and large, just secular education degrees. And so they didn't have as strong a formation in a Catholic vision of education as the religious had. So even though they were well-meaning, I think they just didn't see and understand the depths of what made the Catholic schools successful. It was very, I think, difficult for them to begin to realize that they needed to have a past, they needed to see this as a kind of pastoral vocation to teach in a Catholic school. Those were a number of things that contributed to it. It wasn't parents pulling their kids out. That didn't happen, I think, in that early time of the decline. It was more like in the, it was more in the 80s after that big decline had happened, the first wave anyway, that was when they looked at, at the Catholic schools and thought, these just are, these are not that different from the public schools, and we don't, want, we don't want to send our kids there. You have an entry, your first entry in the book is entitled, Treasures Old and New, Looking to Our Past to Renew Our Vision. And you say there that, quote, Catholic schools are well past the point of crisis. What is the dominant mood now, I mean, maybe maybe, maybe we, have a, we have two dominant moods, one in the Catholic schools that seem to be slipping, and then another in the Catholic schools that seem to be gaining. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that might be right. Um, maybe I would say about the first group. I, th I think that there's a strong commitment among those who have survived <laughs> to the great good that Catholic education can provide. So I think there's concern, but not a readiness to give up, though that can be mixed. One of the temptations right now is the idea that, well, you know, um, Catholic schools are always a financial struggle. Why don't we just close them down and restart them as charter schools, but then have the same people involved? So there's a temptation, I think, having really lost a vision of the distinctness of a Catholic school to think, well, if we just shut it down, and restarted as a charter school, we won't lose very much, yeah. and we can keep the same personnel in place and still have it have a social mission, which many Catholic schools, they see that maybe as their primary function, is just to serve, to give a, a, a solid education to the impoverished. So that's a real temptation there. But I think that there's a, there is a, a 
great commitment still to uh, maintaining the Catholic schools, but then trying to find and express the distinctness. There's a large group that's lost, that, does, that doesn't know where to turn for that, and I think the group that we work with, they have found it, and that's why there's so much excitement in those schools among teachers, administrators, pastors, parents, and students. It's one of the great things when I go visit the schools. It's such a delight to see teachers and students rejoicing in the learning that's going on in the classroom. What have Catholic leaders tried in order to stop and reverse the trend? Uh, what, what, what have you seen the efforts? Maybe, I mean more the mistaken courses that haven't worked. What, what were those? I mean, you, you, you mentioned the charter school option. I guess that, that's, that, that, that partly answers my question. Any other thing that they were, yeah. they were looking at? I think that um, another serious initiative, there are a number of different initiatives. Some of them have greater and lesser success. But um, one that got major coverage was sort of focusing on, re, on, on trying to address administrative problems and sort of corporate organization problems in the Catholic schools. So I think that like the um, Archdiocese of Philadelphia turned over control of their high schools to an organization that was going to revamp them as businesses if you will. I mean, keeping them as parochial schools, but just teach them good business sense. Mm-hmm. And, and then that way, save them financially. And I think that that's had some success on the financial level, but it's missing what I think is the most important component, which is to reinvigorate the faith life throughout the curriculum and throughout the, the, the school experience. What kind of guidance came over the years from Rome in, in America regarding the schools? Was, was, did you find anything particularly helpful, useful, practical, workable? <laughs> you, well, let's see, that's a, that's a, that's a tall order. Um, yes, to, to different degrees. I mean, one of the things that um, has caused a crisis of identity in Catholic schools is just that Catholic educators don't even know that there are church teachings about Catholic schools. So there have been a series of documents on Catholic education that started in the 1920s and picked up steam after the Second Vatican Council and offer a lot of guidance with regard to vision and also many practical considerations. So I'd say the, uh, the Catholic school, that document that came out, I think, in 77, um, another religious dimension of education in Catholic schools, that document takes the religious center of a Catholic school and shows how that needs to permeate throughout the curricular areas. Mm-hmm. One of the providential things that happened in the growth of our work at the Institute was the publication in 2007 of Archbishop Michael Miller's booklet called The Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools. In it, and we feature that in one of the chapters in our book, but um, in it he, he digested, he was the secretary for the Vatican Congregation for Education, and he digested all of the documents since the Second Vatican Council and presented them in the form of five benchmarks. His idea being, well, in America, we really need to have goals. So he, he said, here are five benchmarks under which you can start to evaluate your schools with respect to how fully Catholic they are. And I think that's been a, that's been a great help in our work. Any school we go into, that's the first thing that we do, is we, we try to turn them to that booklet and, and use that as an inroad to um, getting them to rethink and relook at what they're doing in their own school. And what's the title of that booklet again? 
It's called the Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools. Right, which in her entry, Elizabeth Sullivan focuses on on that document, and and so you still see that as a as a live, helpful, supportive kind of model for Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's helpful here is to understand the plight of the teacher over the past oh forty years, especially picking up steam since late nineties and two thousands. Teachers they no longer have a vision or are expected to have any vision or understanding of their educational goals. All they're expected to do is to take the standards that are given to them and then not, then both uh, implement those standards and importantly document everywhere that they are implementing the standards that they've been given. And if a student asks a teacher, well, why are we studying this? The teacher can only say, well, you need to pass the test. You need to be able to get into high school. You need to be able to get into college. Because the teachers, by and large, don't have any idea of why they have to implement these standards. So by taking the Holy See's teaching on Catholic schools as a, as a starting point, we, we certainly go into much more depth in our formation programs, but um, to take it as a starting point, it, it just starts to free teachers from that kind of slavish dependence on standards and opens their minds to see the goods that they can accomplish with their students and then they become freed to actually do what their teachers hearts have always wanted to do which is to educate and form their students in things in, in the things that they love themselves i was working with one of the uh, national dominicans and she had been on a, a she had participated in a um, an accreditation visit and she said she was just shocked to find out that Teachers at the school she went to had to have every five minutes of their, of their time in the classroom, they had to put down what they were going to be doing during those five minutes throughout the week. And if a, an administrator came into the room and they were not where they said they were going to be, they would have to answer to the administrator. That's how chained the teachers are. You know, I hadn't thought of this because it, I don't think it pops up in the book, but the many Catholic dioceses adopted Common Core, the Common Core standards. Do you think that was a mistake? Yes, I do. Um, I haven't, you know, it's, it's, it had such a, there's such a lot of buzz about it five or six years ago. I haven't heard a ton about it right now. But yes, I do. It was, um, it was again, a sign that for all of the effort and you know, blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making Catholic schools independent so that we don't have any reliance upon government funds or, or only external um, reliance. That makes us completely free to educate as we think best. But we're so afraid to make that kind of judgment ourselves that we completely rely upon the secular world to tell us what's important. And I think that to validate what we're doing. And I think that that was a large part of the motivation of schools adopting the Common Core standards is they had to be seen to be keeping in step with what the, what the secular schools were doing. And I think Common Core, there was some language in there which was not terrible, but there was certainly not a depth of vision of educating the souls of young people in, the, in anything like in that document and, or in those, in those standards. And to embrace that is to embrace a fundamentally secular outlook. Common Core represented the kind of culmination of a debasement of education that's happened throughout America, which is the idea that we're educating students really simply to make them fit into the corporate model. 
and it's it's all about economic education solely. Everything is turned into the service of economic education. To really get away from that, in, in the next entry by Jared Stout, uh, he actually refers to, quote, the sacramental approach to teaching, which I imagine, you know, secular teachers are not going to be naturally inclined to that. But what is a sacramental approach to teaching? A quick answer to that would be the recognition that everything that happens in the natural world is an opportunity for grace to affect us. So the the sacraments are grace coming to us from physical, embodied, sensible realities. So a sacramental approach to teaching would be one where you'd see that I'm teaching history or, or social studies or mathematics. These are all opportunities for God to be connecting with the soul of the student. And so as a teacher, I want to be aware of those things. And those are usually the most exciting and profound parts of the teaching experience. I know that at Thomas Aquinas College, where I'm a tutor, we had a, we've had a stream of remarkable students from a charter school that have, that have come to us in recent years, and they all say that they got their motivation and inclination from a Euclid class that they had with a teacher who just showed them the intellectual and spiritual beauty that he found in Euclid. And that really ignited their wonder and hunger for the true, the good, and the beautiful that led them to choose a school like Thomas Aquinas College. Uh, your entry actually goes into, quote, the classical liberal arts tradition. And you say there's a ri- revival going on in, in this area. How do you know that? How do I know there's a revival? Yeah. Most of the schools that we work with, and not only in, in the Catholic school world, but in um, the non-Catholic Christian world and in many of the charter schools, there are probably close to 750 or 1,000 schools now that would identify themselves as, as trying to re-implement a classical liberal arts tradition. Why is this happening now? Andrew, we're in the 21st century. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, can't we leave that stuff behind? We did leave it behind, and you know, we left it behind pretty effectively back in the, starting in the 40s and 50s, and uh, look where it's gone so far. It's an interesting story that I think this turn to the classical liberal arts education happened, at least it got its, its prominent push from the Dorothy Sayers lecture at Oxford in the 1940s called The Lost Tools of Learning. And that's a short work that most of the people in this classical liberal arts revival have read. When those parents were looking to decide, okay, I don't want to send my kids to that school, I need to educate them myself or join with others, what direction, what are we going to give them? Because we don't want to just give them the the secular um, curriculum. We want to do what's really best. Many of those parents found Dorothy Sayers' work when it was reprinted in the National Review in the 70s, and she gave a, um, a short, accessible direction to how to implement, how to adapt a classical arts education. And those parents and others took that and then that, that gave them some direction, and then they built on that and learned through their experience what was successful with their kids. I think that one of the things that it does, and one of the reasons people are turning to the classical of arts tradition, is it, it, it forms the mind and enlightens the heart. And so it, it's fundamentally human, and that really makes it stand out from almost every 
other educational model out there, which, because of the rejection of the supernatural character of human beings, they, they, they can never really educate human beings fully. When we spoke at the start about the innovative and renewal going on, is the classical tradition in the curriculum one of the, the common keys of renewal? Have schools, have, have Catholic schools been turned around by changing their curriculum back toward a classical liberal arts? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, now, it's, uh, for the most part, I guess some schools inside and outside the Catholic world that have undertaken this, this renewal, sometimes they go back and they really study what was done in ancient Greek and Greece and Rome and by the Jesuits, and they kind of consciously try to, to model that. For others, it's more, they get a strong sense of the goals that were, and some of the means that were used, but they're really focused on the good that they, they're bringing about in their own experience in their, in their, in their schools. But the, um, the turn to looking at education through the lens of the trivium and the quadrivium has been very common. The trivium being language, basically language-focused education, where your goal is to help students to learn to read deeply and well, to master words, both in the reading and understanding, but also in the speaking and presentation and thinking. And in the quadrivium, to use the math, mathematics and sciences to present the wonders of God's creation. Those have been fundamental at many of the schools, most of the schools that we work with. Do you find that this vision, even though it is consciously Catholic, uh, even though in the, in the, some of the non-Christian, non-Catholic Christian schools are doing this, but even in the Catholic schools, that Catholic identity does not hinder, at least the evidence is, it, it doesn't seem to hinder a lot of non-Catholic parents from sending their kids to the Catholic liberal arts schools? Yeah, and in fact, I think many of them find that they're more attractive to non-Catholic because they have a strong sense of the goods that they're, they're trying to accomplish in the classroom. They're a unified educating community, and they're, they tend to be just very joyful communities. And so that makes them even more attractive to non-Catholic parents. Can you give us an example of a particular school that, that turned around along these lines? St. Jerome Academy was, as I said, the, the first parochial school to transition. And um, they, there was an, a common uh, element in their story was they were facing being closed, loss of students, loss of tuition, uh, large debts. And the pastor began to wonder why there were so many parishioners who were homeschooling their kids instead of sending them to their parochial school. So they kind of did the unthinkable. They actually asked the parents, why aren't you sending your kids here? Rather than condemning them, um, they actually asked them. And they said, because we can offer a better Catholic education for our kids than you provide. And then they said, well, what would we have to do to make this a school that you would be willing to send your kids to? And so they, uh, it, they brought some of the parents into a curriculum committee and that included uh, Michael Hanby, at, uh, who's a professor at 
the John Paul II Institute and um, another fellow from Seaway that I'm forgetting forgetting their names. But they came up with working with the principal and others in the school. They came up with this very detailed, wonderful Saint Jerome educational plan, which I recommend to everybody to take a look at. It's available on their website and on our website at the institute. So when they embraced that plan, they really turned everything around. They went from being on the verge of closing. I think that they've more than doubled, close to tripled their um, their enrollment in the course of 10 years. They've been able to fundraise successfully and pay off their debts. And they've also spawned now uh, the St. Jerome Institute, which is a high school effort in the D.C. diocese, which is which just started, I think they're in their second year now. And then more of that success, not only did they, they shared that document with other schools like Our Lady of Lords in Denver, which Rosemary Vanderweel is one of the authors in, in our book, and she uh, was asked to be the principal of a school, this would have been about 2012, Our Lady of Lords, that was going to shut down. But um, she found out about the St. Jerome Educational Plan she got in contact with them and with us, and they had, they've had the same remarkable transformation. People flock with enthusiasm to these schools. When they find them, they come and they're so committed to the success of the schools that they become not only educational successes, but they become financial successes as well. And Our Lady of Lords has now had to, had to open a second campus, and they've been also, I think, instrumental in getting the Archdiocese of Denver to start its own classical liberal arts school um, three or four years ago, Frasati Academy, and now we're, tr- we're working with the Archdiocese of Denver to start helping to form their, uh, their teachers. Okay, la- last question, Andrew. Where was the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, your organization, where was it five years ago and where are you now? Oh, um, five years ago, I think we had gone through maybe a 10-year process of offering programs and learning from the successes and partial failures of those programs, improving them by getting a lot of feedback. We've always been very keen on getting feedback from our participants. We had already started to be a a network, um, a national, provide a national network for the schools that we work with. So we had our first conference, national national conference in uh, 2013, which really energized the people who attended it because they had felt that they were alone. They're kind of alone in, the, in their efforts. When they found out there was actually, at that time, 75 other people <laughs> in the country who was trying to do what they were doing, they were so encouraged by that. So we were at that point, um, but we had, we had a small number of schools we were working with. Um, in, in the past five years, because we learned from that decade of experience, we have helped so many schools and, and dioceses now to successfully make the transition. And, um, there were a lot of failures in the beginning with, as, with any kind of experimental thing. But we've been helping them to streamline it and so attain a much higher ratio of success in these transformations. Um, and right now we're just booming with work. Um, and I think we've been working with a number of uh, Catholic universities helping them in collaboration with them to, um, to offer more deeply Catholic educational philosophy and training to, um, to teachers and administrators. So I think we're in, in a very good position as long as we can hold ourselves together. Growth is nice. Growth is great. The volume is Renewing Catholic Schools, How to Regain a Catholic Vision in a Secular Age. Andrew Seeley, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.